0: This is Who You Know. On Sunday, February 26th, up in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago, uh, I rode my bike up from my home in Bridgeport and met Wesley Hine at a uh, cafe called Archie's, uh, just just off the Loyola Red Line stop. Uh, In the back room, uh, a bunch of people had gathered and... uh, Wes uh, read from his book, uh, Busker's Blues, which I had written about for the Chicago Reader. He played his guitar, and he had uh, his friend accompanying him on uh, bass and uh, piano. Then I read some stuff, and uh, wanted to share it with you. The sound isn't the best, but I think you'll get the idea. It was a good time.
1: Too much TV. We never bought toilet paper, always stole it from jobs and restaurants. We shopped for food. I worked long hours. After work, I did all the housework, then drank away my aching muscles. She overdosed, cried, screamed, loved me, hated me. We ate mushrooms trying to sew the holes in our souls. We were holy children giggling. We were hicks with mouths full of garbage. We had our own kitty cat language, we had pet names and insults. We tried hole-in-the-wall restaurants that were all the same. We met each other's parents, we kicked each other's baggage, we psychoanalyzed each other, we double dated with our demons, we made love like cannibals. The train pulled into the station, suitcase in my hand. I said, so The train pulled into the station. Well, I looked in the eye. I felt so lonesome, oh, so lonesome I could not help but cry All my love's in vain All my love's in vain All my love, all my love's in vain I lost my car lost my job, lost my lady, my home, and then my mind. I'm sorry, but I can't feel sorry anymore. I walked away. I know where to go, but I walked away. I was more numb than miserable. There's a point where things get so bad, you're in survival mode, fight or flight. There's only one thing you can do, so you see it and you do it. Everything focuses to a point of clarity. There's no balancing of consequences anymore because there's no choice. Easy as pain, it was over. Linda lives in my bones and attacks me in my sleep. As I keep walking away from her, I hope that she finally finds happiness. I hope more than anything that she finally makes it. I hope her mind will cease to storm. I hope she won't hurt herself again. I hope she won't treat other men like she treated me. I hope someone will succeed at making her feel loved where I failed. In dreams. I wish she was still lying beside me. When I wake up, I hope I never see her again. So can you crack that for us? Get that nice breeze in here. I'll take
2: this off. (laughs) Maybe you could ask Roberto about
1: the fans. I need more fans in here. (laughs) (laughs) Roberto!
0: switch over there is that by the coat rack is that a switch try no, yeah. it yeah let's see what happens <laughs> <laughs> no does nothing now that's the lights lights we don't need Need
1: fans. There is, there's a switch over there, but I don't
0: know.
2: Gracie,
0: could you
2: turn
1: I this down? I think Yeah. Turn it down. Just <laughs> so that I can turn know I didn't. Trish, when you want to. Alright. So, yeah, there's a lot of people here that I really respect, and writers and artists. It's really nice that Archie's is really making a. Nice community feeling here. Thanks to Harold Little Bucks and everyone there for setting up the show. And, uh, shit. This next one's about, uh, the first time I, uh, hey, there's my friend Sid. He's,
0: he's lost.
1: All right. This next part is about, uh, the first time I uh, used my sign. Um, when I was a busker, uh, I read this here last week at MC Rydell's reading here, and uh, it went pretty well. So we'll do this, yeah. I'm on Michigan Avenue. My guitar is out. My sign is propped up against my guitar case. Reading, tell me your problems, and I'll write you a blues song. Some changes sprinkled in my cap, hoping to take mm. seed. Minutes pass, people on Michigan Avenue rush in all directions, their motivations unapparent. Fingers keep busy noodling on the fretboard. Few people pause to read read my sign. Do these people even have any problems to write blues songs about, I think? Then, a middle-aged man strolling with a tall lady stops about 20 feet away. He points at my sign. He has wispy brown hair and sad eyes. She is lanky and has dirty blonde hair, thinking I have a bite. I smile as best I can and wave them in. With a little coaxing, he steps up. Howdy, young man, he says. He greets me with a southern accent. I got more problems than I can shake a stick at. Sorry to hear about that, he says. Music always helps. You want a customized song? Fun, fun. How much do uh, blue songs cost? I'm nervous. I don't want him to know that it's my first time. At a glance, I size him up. White tennis shoes, pastel colored shirt, khaki pants. He's probably from out of town. Just $10, I tell him. I whip out a piece of paper from my pocket, click my pen. Go ahead, tell me your troubles. He produces the 10 spot. Well, young man, I have lung cancer. My heart sinks. This is more than I bargained for. <laughs> the doctors say I might have a year. And this young lady here, he pauses to take the hand of his companion. Well, she's my ex-wife. We were married for eight years. We've been through a lot together, but nothing like this. Oh, wow. All I can say, Delaney. She's come to visit me. We're going to have a night on the, in the big town, dinner dancing, champagne and song. I'm taking notes. The truth is, if she don't know by now, is that I want her back. Her eyes well up. This is heavy. I pegged him as a well-to-do white class or middle-class white guy from the suburbs. and cover, right? Everyone has problems from Mission Avenue to 95th Street and beyond. That's the blues. Asking for a minute, I, t- I look at my notes. I keep it simple. Quickly, crossing out some words and replacing them with rhymes and drawing around to rearrange the order of the phrases I have something. Slowly, I start a pulse on my old guitar. He takes her hand. I strum a basic Willie Nixon riff and bone out. Baby, I know you, and you know me. The greatest days of my life were when you were on my knee. Doctors say, I got a spot in my lung. Doctors say, maybe a year left of fun. Baby, I'm no longer foolish and young. Won't you hold my hand as I slip into the graveyard, beyond? Darling, I won't treat you bad. Please, I won't make you sad. Baby, you make me so happy. Please, my wife, come back to me. When I look up, she has her hands cupped around her mouth like she's starting to have to cry. He's down on one knee, He kisses her hand. She nods, her head up and down, and silently, she helps him up. They embrace. Damn, now I'm starting to tear up. A small crowd has stopped to watch. Everyone starts clapping and a couple kisses. My first customer turns to me. This time he fishes out a $20 bill and puts it in my hand. Thank you, young man. Oh, and if you smoke, try your damnedest to give it up. He winks, she waves, that's it. The crowd evaporates with the current of the street. (laughs) 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 Make way for Sid Yadish. me, Sid, and said in Guitar Mike were in a band many moons ago called Two Dollar Cockroach. I thought we were right in the mood with a little sing along. Know, or yeah. yeah again, one more time for Dimitri <laughs> right with Matt, many fine books all over here we
3: go yeah, so yeah thanks West for having me and heirloom books and Archies uh, yeah, I don't have the luxury of uh, the musical instruments, but uh, you know I'll do what I can here uh, so I'm going to read a few things uh. <laughs> Sort of in reverse chronological order. Uh, first is a thing that is not published yet, but will be one day. Probably by me, because that's, that's who seems to be the only person that wants to publish my books is me. So, <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, uh, the working title for this book is To Whom It May Concern. And it's, it's a series of letters that I'm writing in response to letters that I've received <coughs> over the years. But, the people that wrote the letters are either dead or dead to me, at least, so these are some of the thoughts I'm having rereading these things from sometimes 20 or 30 years ago. That mic works, but you got to be right up close to it. Okay. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, I just got to be able to, you know what I need to
3: do is move it so I can
0: see the paper.
3: Oh, maybe. Nope. No. I don't know. Ah uh, yeah i'll just try to read this oh there we go, go. weird huh, uh,
0: uh, very uh, directional. Uh, hmm. don't eat it no i know I'm, I'm trying to find the place where it's picking up
3: hello hello
2: <laughs>
3: there nope <laughs> that's really weird what a weird mic you got a good help voice yes, go ahead Am I okay reading without it yeah. Yeah. yeah let's just move it out of the fucking way it's very good. All right, better. Now it's not in my way. So this is one of these uh, letters that I'm writing to these dead people. Uh, Dear G, I'm back home after our breakup dinner. Do you feel as little as I do? It's remarkable, baffling. Aren't we supposed to be heartbroken, shattered? Another reach for love, understanding, smashed. On the shores of reality I should feel like a failure but all I feel is relief maybe if we lived in the same city the thing between us would have ended in a week or two rather than a full season it's easier to overlook someone's lacks when you only share the same room an hour or two at a stretch the days and weeks between meetings uh, The heart is free to fantasize and embroider and exaggerate. It can make a face you don't notice on a passerby into a vision of beauty. Had we slept in the same bed more than three or four times, you were lying there like a dead fish tolerating whatever was happening above it, waiting for it to be over, will have become an issue. You might have stopped taking my snoring as an adorable habit and recognized it as an intolerable condition that caused you insomnia. Lucky for us both, we pulled the plug while holding hands. Still, a few things eat at me in retrospect. Why did I let you call Mexicans mud people and not say anything? Why did I pretend to like your shitty songs? Was your letting me fuck you a get out of jail free card? Did it blind me to all all your obvious flaws? You must have had a long list of grievances as well. Or was this just a novel way to spend a fall until a mate who could support you in the luxury to which you would always been accustomed could come along? Slumming at Bohemia never fit you so well. Thanks for sharing pictures of your children, but I didn't ask to see them. The idea that your genetic line will continue is not the happy thought you take it to be. (laughs) What a great guy, right? Uh, Why did you write anyway? Has your marriage hit a dull spot? Do you really recall our time together fondly? It made me recognize my own shallowness that I went with you for as long as I did. You're so fucking beautiful. I was flattered you'd give me the time of day. Why did you ever have to open your mouth? It would have been perfect if we just never exchanged a word. Okay, I'm kidding. It could never have worked. I'm sure your husband finds you clever, though he sounds like a real idiot. I'm not bitter. I don't envy him. I'm glad the two of you found one another. I'm also glad we're thousands of miles apart, so you're never tempted to invite me over. But thanks for writing. (laughs) that's that. (laughs) Not all the letters are from or about X's, but a healthy... (laughs) I think helping them are. So so going back in time a little bit, uh, I'm not reading anything for my last book, which is called Paint by Numbers, that you can buy from me, but... uh, that came out in the fall, but the book before that is a book called <laughs> Old Style, and it's uh, a collection of like very barely fictionalized stories from my life as a bartender in a couple of Chicago bars. And this is a section from the beginning. It's called uh, ABC Bartending School. Yeah. I had no in, so I did what suckers do. Yeah. I signed up for a class advertised in The Reader next to massages and unwanted household goods. Had to borrow 200 bucks from my folks to pay tuition. The ABC Bartending School is above a liquor store in a lonely building in the West Loop. A makeshift classroom holds tables covered with bottles of yellow, red, orange, blue, pink, and green water, and different glassware. Twenty students take turns making pink squirrels, Harvey wallbangers, fuzzy navels, sex on the beaches, cure royales, and dozens of other cocktails we'll never make if we land an actual bartending gig. Our instructor is a tired looking old fellow. He goes through the motions. What landed him at this sorry place is likely the same thing that landed his students here. No clear direction, no prospects, no way to pay for what we do, uh, because we have to. Bill's due, but the current gig is killing our insides. A half-hearted Hail Mary. The ad in the paper promised an income of hundreds of dollars a night, and job placement upon graduation. After pouring many dozen ersatz forgotten drinks into brandy snifters, cordial glasses, flutes and Collins tumblers, we're given a diploma and a hotline number, updated every Friday morning. For the next month, I sit by the phone Fridays as 10 a.m. approaches, fingers ready to dial. The first half dozen listings never change. Pizza chain, suburban hotel bar, Tex-Mex joint, you get the idea. I don't have the heart to try them. I know I can't handle a place with a uniform or a corporate employee manual. I'm too old for flair. I keep hoping for some neighborhood spot mom and pop sharon's message gives little description of her bar but i call anyway she answers as if i'd interrupted something important but she's running very late we set a time to meet the blue light with a standard issue old style sign waving slowly in the wind looks like every other chicago tavern i've passed without a second look each has a crowd for whom it is a home away from home, but if it isn't yours, it's indistinguishable from the one down the street or miles across town. Through the diamond porthole in the front door, I see a rail-thin woman with curly brown hair and eyes popping out of her head, running around a fiberboard-paneled bar decorated with feeling beer ads and neon signs. I push the door open and introduce myself. After confirming I graduated from the bartending school, Sharon launches straight into training. I'm hired. (laughs) She shows me the gray lockbox under the bar filled with cash for poker machine payouts, stressing in no uncertain terms not to pay out to anyone I don't know. Strangers are to be told the games are for amusement only, like the stickers next to the screens of spinning slots say. Every other bar along that stretch of Western Avenue gets raided. The two-way a few doors down closes for good after they get busted. But the blue light is spared. So many of the regulars are cops, and you know shit where you eat. She shows me what to set the pizza toaster oven to and how the popcorn popper works. She tells me to add 50 cents to all drink prices after 2 AM a kind of unhappy hour premium. (laughs) Most of the bar's business is transacted in those two unhappy hours. I never asked Sharon about where the bar's name came from. Did she and Kenny name it or inherit it from the previous owner? The old style sign swaying in the whipping wind above the door, likely from the 70s or before, hints at the latter. Was it named after the 1932 Lenny Riefenstahl film? <laughs> or maybe after Cherenkov radiation, the phenomenon responsible for the blue glow in nuclear reactors. More likely, it's a tribute to the sprawling police station across Western Avenue. As cop put it, blue isn't the greatest color for visual perception, but it works just fine for things that really matter. So that's that's from Blue Light. Uh from <laughs> Old <laughs> right. uh, uh, next thing I'm reading is from the book I put out uh, right before old style Kalosovie stamps, which was supposed to be my second book, and I mostly finished. Jesus, like in 2014 or 15, but didn't wind up uh, being published by me until 2020. And it's it's a kind of uh, immigration memoir. It's about how I started doing art and how my family came to America from the Soviet Union. So this, is, uh, this piece is called Soviet Stamps, just like the book. I started collecting stamps before we left the Soviet Union. And my stamp collection came to be a sort of memorial to the place I was from and where I no longer lived. Many of the stamps came from places other than Russia, like Cuba, Mongolia, or Czechoslovakia. Places under various levels of control from Moscow. I spent a lot of time taking stamps out and rearranging them on the different pages of the album. Each page has six rows with cellophane behind which to place each stamp. Oftentimes, either the cellophane or the stamp would rip from my repeated rearrangements. Sometimes i would grouped them by color, other times by country of origin. I finally settled on a thematic grouping. Soviet space program on one page, Olympics on another. Mushrooms, flowers, cars, ships, children's artwork. Revolutionary heroes each got their own place. I was never very careful or precious with my collection. Many stamps are frayed, bent, and torn. The grouping and regrouping of the little images was much more important than their monetary value. Stamps taught me how to compose a picture. Within their perforated or rectangular borders are words, numbers, and images, put together in ways that spoke on several levels at once. They are art, communication, and currency within a few square centimeters. There's no room for much fat or wavering or doubt. You have very limited real estate, so you better pack as big a punch as you possibly can. Space stamps are made to remain on Earth. They're ten. They're often. They often commemorate the past, but are used in the present. Some celebrate folk tradition Yet are issued by a government dedicated to eradicating those same traditions. Whatever else is depicted. The bottom line is the currency value illustrated in one of the corners, or right there in the middle. The picture humanizes the commercial requirement of a stamp. Sometimes playing plays counterpoint, other times exalts or enhances or celebrates industry and commerce. In totalitarian societies, self-expression can only find an outlet through official channels. As long as the censors are satisfied that the intended message comes across, the artist can slip some of their own interest or preoccupation through. It is often not a hidden message or covert idea so much as a nonverbal portrayal of some aspect of the world that runs counter to the ideological control. As much as a portrait of Lenin on a stamp is just Soviet propaganda, Some detail behind his bald head or layout, the text, or interaction of colors, can serve to undercut the hammering of propaganda. A lot of the stamps in my album are canceled ones, meaning they were mailed, then ripped or steamed off letters and parcels, then given to me. Some have corners missing, bits of envelopes still stuck to their backs. Pictures marred or obscured by postal markings. There is no value to a real philatelist, but priceless as evidence of a personal history. <coughs> Taken as a whole, my two cheap water-damaged pen-scrawled plastic albums form a sort of diary of leading the Soviet Union and arri- arriving in America. The letters from friends and family back in the USSR uh, from which many of them were removed at, are long gone. Now I have no recall of what they were about Many were addressed to my parents or their friends, so I never read them anyway. But the recipients knew uh, about my collection and generously contributed to it whenever they could. The stamps have long lost most of their context and original associations. Almost 40 years of being untouched while being transported from my parents' home to my various apartments will do that. They're related to each other by their proximity and by the connection to me, much more than where they came from or the letters that they paid to ferry across continents. Context and setting often alter the meaning of art in this way. Perhaps in some ideal antiseptic stamp Valhalla, better specimens of my stamps live and express their philatelic essence clearly and unambiguously. But mine sit bunched unevenly on their respective pages, waiting to be looked at every few years. Whatever resonance they may have for anyone else, I choose to show them to, though they'll always remain my hidden clues. Trace evidence of a mostly forgotten past, fragments from a displaced, unsettled sort of life, holding answers to questions I don't know to ask. I never went to buy, to buy stamps for my collection at a shop. In that way, I didn't actively collect. There were more tokens of a connection to the Soviet Union rather than objects amassed for their aesthetic or monetary value. I was too young to think of them in those terms anyhow. To me, they were just little pictures that I, I could endlessly rearrange in my album. Connoisseurship and collecting played a little part in it. I didn't know anyone my age with a stamp collection, so there was no one to trade with. My grandmother's friends occasionally gave me extras from their their caches, but they didn't teach me much about them or about the finer points of philately. Judging by their poor condition, no one taught me how to take care of them at all. The type of coveting required to become a collector was never part of my personality. My stamps were a means to an end, tools to learn rather than exalted objects. I found out how pictures were organized by sorting and resorting them. I learned about composition by how one stamp changed depending on what other stamp it was next to. The bits of color in each harmonized or graded against the na- its neighbors. And the friction, or lack thereof, made its own kind of music. The stamps would get dog eared and creased, but that never bothered me. Except for uh, American ones affixed to my uncle's letters, all my stamps were from Eastern Bloc countries. I didn't catch any of the political subtext. Stamps are a form of currency and as such an official representation of whatever political entity issues them. To me, they were just pictures of cars, boats, animals, athletes, or flowers, I didn't know about the range of styles represented either. Cubism, realism, socialist or otherwise, folk art, naive art, expressionism, constructivism, impressionism, photography, all these and many other styles could be found in my albums. I knew instinctively that these were different ways people made up to show how we lived and that I wanted to do that as well. I didn't have the words to say that or describe what made one style different from another. But whatever this was, I always wanted to be part of it. Even that far back, making pictures was how I talked to the world. I want to treat my memories a bit like my stamp collection. I'll shuffle and rearrange them to try and find some sense of an order. Just as with these stamps, the memories have most often been tripped by pictures, whether drawings, paintings, or photographs, which I will leave for you to judge for yourself. Okay, so <laughs> thank you. That's not a lot of it. Got, uh, just one last thing, uh, and this kind of goes back to the beginning of kind of what got me writing, or what was uh this job so i I, right after i finished art school in 1993 i moved i moved to boston and became a cab driver and eventually started having to write about it and uh that's what's really responsible for this whole writing and book problem that i have to this day Uh, so this is from early in the cab book which i've sort of collected all the cab writing into one director's cut edition called All Hack that you can buy over there afterwards if you like, and it's called Greetings. A raised hand generates an irresistible magnetic pull on a taxi driver. After some years, my mind is trained to seek it out, to the point of imagining it in light poles, reflections in parked cars, waving tree branches, and on a slow night, just about any likely shape that mimics that desired sign, the symbol of time not spent in vain. Depending on the time of day or night, what follows that hopeful hand will vary from absolute silence to aggressive and often unwanted camaraderie. But in, in most every case, it begins with a greeting. On afternoons of the loop, terse one or two phrase directives abound. Words like Ogilvy, O'Hare, Wrigley, Lakeview, Bucktown, Midway, Michigan and Randolph, Ontario and Chicago, and on and on. Like pushing the elevator button, they named their wish with no need for further communication. Beyond an occasional thank you, in addition of a pre-calculated tip worked out from countless identical trips. Expecting much more than the fare displayed on the meter would be wishful thinking during afternoons in the loop. <laughs> there's a nonverbal contract made between passenger and driver that these transactions are basic and unremarkable, unworthy of excess comment or thought. With the approach of twilight, there are signals that work mode is being shed. The first thirst for social contact can be detected. Between calls and texts, they might ask about how my day is going, usually without expectation or need of much response. Like exercise done at the gym so many of them go to, this verbal calisthenics is meaningless aside from keeping limber in preparation for the heavier lifting that lies ahead. In early evening, couples wait at the curb, peering furtively at every passing taxi, sometimes raising their hands after they've passed, prompting slam brakes from more aggressive or desperate drivers. He wears his button-down, untucked over nice jeans, his getup up completed with, more often than not with flip-flops. She's dressed in the nines, from the dew to the makeup to the little black dress to the heels that make her teeter long before the first drink. They'll exchange pleasantries with me. He'll talk to a driver to show her he's got that common touch. She'll talk if she's bored with him or out of nervousness. Once in a great while, there will be a conversation that reflects their good spirits. One that will serve to start off their date with good towards all. Packs of men pile in through the night. They'll start with boss, chief, buddy, dude, man, bro, or hey. And when they think they're being funny, sir. They've had a few or more, so they break the ice instinctively without prompting. They'll ask how things have been, as if we're long-lost friends, and will even feign interest at at the answer. They'll ask where the ladies are, then go back to recapping the talent encountered up to then. I could be included in their club should I want in. A story or two about those crazy bitches would qualify me for lifetime membership. As taverns empty, the first words to me can run the gamut from drunken mirth to slow silence. Tipsy chicks continue flirting in the cab as if still sipping apple teenies. They laugh too loud, say too much, and create more intimacy than there should be with a complete stranger. They tell me about their evening, but there's no one to call at this late hour, needing a con- confidant to vet to. They'll ask for advice or empathy with no qualms about their listeners' qualifications and character. The need to ease burdens trumps the caution they might have shown before the sunset. Last are the ones who were overserved and know it. With luck their address can be extracted without too much hassle, They can be left to drift off into the end of the night fugue state. Upon arrival, I have to blaze the lights. Now must address the drowsing reveler in a raised voice. Hey, buddy, pal, chief, time to wake up. You're home. Time to say goodnight. Thank you.